Let's pray. Lord God, I do trust you. I pray that we all trust you. Trust you with this word, with this message, with your word. We trust you with our hearts. We trust you with our actions. We trust you to act today in a convicting way that produces change that ultimately glorifies you as we become more satisfied in you through Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit whom we ask would join us powerfully this morning without your spirit we are doomed so fill us all and take over my words in Jesus name Amen. <clears throat> couple of questions to start. First question, um, <clears throat> do you believe the words we just sang? All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I want you to store that belief away for a second. Another question. Um, <clears throat> When I preach, do you believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through me? You don't have to answer that out loud. Because <laughs> if you don't, I don't want you going, no. Um, <laughs> because I think if you are thinking to yourself, no, that's just Mark and the Holy Spirit's not using him or speaking through him, you probably wouldn't even come here, right? You trust that the, the pastors that you listen to and the churches you go to, you choose to go to, <clears throat> You believe that that pastor, that preacher, is hopefully filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, if we believe that, then that means that the words that are coming out of my mouth are not mine, but his. Now, I can attest to this. There are many times where I kind of push the Holy Spirit out of the way, and I'm like, I got this. And on those days or in those moments, you can tell it's me, okay? But he... We trust and we believe that he consumes the pulpit and that he's work, working here. Okay, so we believe that God is faithful in the sense that all that we need, he will provide. We believe that this is not my message, but his. So, if those things are true, then I want you to think about this. If we as a congregation, collectively, we're being disobedient. Now when I say collectively being disobedient, as a congregation, we're all together being disobedient. I don't specifically mean every single individual is specifically doing this one particular act of disobedience. But that collectively, um, Only 8% were obeying and 92% were not. I would call that collective congregational disobedience. So if we, as a congregation, collectively were being 92% disobedient, would you expect me, your pastor, 
who you trust is led by the Spirit, though a sinful man, with the belief that God provides, would you expect me to sweep that sin under the rug and ignore it? I don't think you would. Or would you expect me to address that sin even if you don't want to hear it? Even if I don't want to say it? I, I, <laughs> don't, don't rush me, man. I'm getting there. <laughs> Isn't it my responsibility, not me individually, but the elders of this church, of which I am one, isn't it our responsibility to address our collective sin? I, I think we would all agree. So, I'll get to it. <laughs> I have a sensitive subject that I want to address today, okay? And it's interesting that I have to qualify this as sensitive. Because Jesus never qualified this subject with sensitivity. Never. And he talked about it all the time. With, with, with sensitive subjects, I, I, this is how I usually approach because I believe I have the spiritual gift of shepherding. I love people so much. I'm so relational. When I see people walk in the door, my heart just lights up. My face, I, I just love people. It's just always been that way. I remember my sister asked me when I was younger, what are you going to do with your life? I, said, I don't know, I just want to hang out with people, right? So... And then when God called me to ministry, I was like, ah, that's where that's coming from. Now I see. I just, I just love, I love you guys. I care about you. And so when I, when I have difficult things to say, my approach is always to frame it in this framework of shepherding where I want to come to you and take your hand and walk with you and lead you and guide you so that when I say this hard truth, this difficult, challenging thing, I'm there with you to comfort you and support you and be as much like Jesus to you as I can as a shepherd. But I'm not going to do that today. Sometimes a good shepherd has to be a bit more honest. Now, I don't want to be mean or harsh, okay? But sometimes a good shepherd has to be a little more honest and a little more to the point because he has tried to be gentle and he has tried to be understanding and it hasn't worked. So now, just like a father, he has to be like a father to his disobedient and resistant child, and essentially lay down the law. If it's harsh, so be it. It's not my law. It's God's law. You choose if you want to obey him. That's up to you. If you want to obey this, what I'm going to talk to you about. I can rest easy at night knowing that I love you, that I've tried my hardest to shepherd you well, and that today I believe the Spirit has led me to shepherd you this way. Not just in content of the sermon, but in attitude and in tone. I've prayed about this all week, that every ounce of this morning would be the best and most productive way for God to be most glorified in your transformation into Christ-likeness. So, what is it that we apparently are not doing well as a church? What is it 
that Pastor Mark is saying we collectively sin with? What is this act of disobedience that we as a church do? Giving. That's what it is. Or that's what it's not. Why don't you give? I think this is hard because if you don't give, actually I think whether you do or don't, when I say all that I've already said and then I say this is about giving and then I ask you why don't you give? Because I didn't ask why do you give? Because I don't think we do collectively. In fact, I know that we don't collectively give. So when I ask that question, I think immediately what our, our response is is to jump right to our justifications. Okay, I, you know, I give like 10% of my income or I give this amount of money or, or you know, I don't give because this is going on in my life or I don't give because this or that. And, and we jump right to like, why? oh, I got to defend myself. No one's attacking you. You don't have to be in the defensive right now. I don't want you to be defensive right now. I want you to be receptive. If you believe this is not me talking and that the Holy Spirit is going to work this morning through the word of God, then just be receptive. Okay? Even if it's hard to swallow and hard to hear and you feel convicted, that's good. That's God. If you feel ashamed, that's not God. Whatever justification you're working through right now in your mind for whether you give or whether you don't give or how much you give or why you give or why you, whatever your reasoning is on, on your giving life, whether valid or invalid, whether a totally biblically good reason for why you do or any unbiblical reason for why you don't, it is likely a reflection of your spiritual health. Giving is one of the best tells about your spiritual health. So that you understand the gravity of what I just said, I'm going to say it like this to be abundantly clear. If you don't give regularly, faithfully, and abundantly, then you are not spiritually healthy, and you are not spiritually mature. That better sink in for some people. Giving is one of the most important spiritual disciplines or what we call godly disciplines Every believer is commanded to give. I think we all know that. Even if you're not a Christian, you know that religious people go to their religious organizations once a week and give money. Everyone knows that. Giving's not new. It's not this fresh idea. It's something everyone's known about for thousands of years. From the beginning of time, people were sacrificially giving. Okay? Noah got off the ark and off, made an offering to God. So... This is not a new idea. This is probably not new to anybody. Which means, if we're not giving, we are ignoring the biblical command to give. 
And 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 tells us that we're commanded to do so joyfully. We give, we must give joyfully or cheerfully. And we are commanded not to do it compulsively or under pressure. Giving is one, is the one and only discipline in the Bible. Listen to this, this is huge. And I know some of you have ever heard me preach on giving before, which is rare. But if you've ever heard me before, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this. If you haven't been here for very long, this is a huge biblical concept. Giving is the one and only godly discipline or spiritual discipline or command in the entire Bible that God literally challenges you to test him on. Malachi 3.10, God says, bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What is his house today? It's the church. And thereby put me to the test. Doesn't the Bible also tell us, don't put the Lord your God to the test? He says, that's true, but not on this one. On this one, I make an exception. Put me to the test. Say, say, I'm sorry, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord himself says that. Thereby, put me to the test. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Do you believe... Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. You sang it. We had our hands up. We shouted it out loud. Do we believe that? You know who believes that? People who give. Test me is what he's saying. Meaning give to see if I will provide for you. I can prove I'm trustworthy if you would just let go of that one thing that is holding you back from growing in me, but instead of testing his provision, we test his patience with our disobedience. In Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24, Jesus talks about money. Talked about money a lot. He says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. This this doesn't mean, he's not saying you can't save money in life, okay? What he means is don't lay up money for earthly things when there are heavenly things that need to be accomplished. And it's not just heavenly things that need to be accomplished, so give your money to the church so the church can run organizations and ministries for the advancement of the gospel. That's part of it for sure, but it's more than that. It's personal. Jesus is being personal. He's not talking about the institution of the church. He's talking about you. He's talking about this thing right here, your heart and your mind. He's saying stop taking your money and, and reserving it for yourself because you're fearful of what's going on in the world, because you're, you're worried about the things that are going on in your life. In Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he tells this parable where where a a master gives three guys money, talents, and what the master does in the end is he praises the men who invested that money that he gave them. And to the man who takes that money and put it in a savings account, he said he buried it in the ground and just saved it. Didn't want to lose any of it investing He was condemned because he stored up for himself instead of putting it back 
investing the money. When you give, you're not giving it away. You're investing in the kingdom of God. You're investing in the advancement of the gospel. You're investing in lost souls getting saved. You're investing in prayer. You're investing in the preaching and teaching of the word. You're investing in men getting educations to serve churches and to become pastors and to be shepherds like Christ. You're investing in your children. You're investing in the future of the church. You're investing in the kingdom of God. You're investing in your eternal life. That is a good and godly discipline and practice that is glorifying to God and I promise you is satisfying to your soul. I don't want you to get it twisted. Jesus is not saying you can't have any money. Not at all. He's not saying you can't save your money. And he's not saying you can't invest your own money into your own future for retirement and things like that. This is not at all what he's addressing. He's addressing this fundamental basic reality that we are so prone to take and save and reserve instead of give. And God is a giver. There is no better giver, and he wants you to be like him, a giver. God doesn't need your money. You think God's like, oh, come on, just give. The church just needs a few more bucks. You think God's worried about that? That's not on his list of priorities of things that God is worried about. You want to know how long that list is? It doesn't exist. The list doesn't exist. God's not worried about anything. He can take care of the church financially. That's not my issue here this morning. I don't care about how much money we get. It's not about that. This is about you. This is about you and your heart and your relationship with God. The interesting thing about Matthew 6, 19 through 24, that's the text I just read. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Interesting thing about this text is when you get to the end of verse 24, the people who organize the Bible put a break there. And then under that break, after verse 24 and before verse 25, there's a new subtitle that talks about anxiety. It says, do not be anxious. I don't like that. My problem with that is that there should be no break there. These texts are directly related to each other. Listen to these words. Do not be anxious about your life. That's a Bible verse. What is the subject of that text? Is it don't worry? Is it don't be anxious? Is it trust God and have no fear, no anxiety, or no worry? It's not. That's not the subject matter of that text. That text is about money. After verse 24, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And then in verse 25, so remove the break there. Verse 25, therefore. Meaning verse 24, the end of verse 24 is the reason for what he says in verse 25. So the end of verse 24, you cannot serve God and money. Verse 25, therefore, because you can't serve God and money, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
This is a money text. This is about money. This is about giving. Why would Jesus tell us not to be anxious about having the essentials in life, like food and drink and clothes? Because that is the natural and sinful response for why we don't give. We're afraid we won't have enough. And that is not trusting God. And that is why you cannot be spiritually mature if you're not giving because you don't trust God. I can't give because I don't have enough money to pay bills or buy groceries or house myself or clothe myself or pay the water bill. I can't give. And Jesus' response to that is, do not be anxious about those things. When you... When you give, don't be anxious about them. And if that's your decision, if that's your reason not to give, don't be anxious about them and give. He's saying don't withhold your giving because you're worried that you won't have enough for today or for the future. If you do, you are revealing where your heart is, that your heart is set on the world, not on the kingdom of God or the things of God. And that is why I can confidently say that if you are not giving faithfully, regularly, and abundantly, then you are not spiritually mature. Mature believers trust God. And Jesus is very clear in these texts that giving is probably the clearest telling whether or not you trust God. If you're mature in Christ, you trust him. And if you trust him, you will give. Because you believe and understand and obey and know the command and you follow it because you trust him. And if you give, he will provide for your necessities. Mature believers know that, so they give. Immature believers would say that they know that. That they do trust God. And that they they believe those things, but they don't give. So they don't actually trust God. Which is why they're immature. They can't implement their theology with practice. And that is how we measure spiritual maturity. Having information in your head that you can't practice is not mature. Children have that and we call them immature. Didn't you know you're not supposed to hit your sister? Well, yeah, but they know it. They just don't practice it. And what do we do? We discipline them because they're immature and they need to grow. Knowing that you should give, saying that you should give, calling yourself a mature believer, having all this knowledge but not putting it into practice is not spiritual maturity. God does not promise you wealth. I just, just so you know, this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We do not preach that here. God does not promise you wealth. He does not promise you health. He does not promise you prosperity. He does promise you suffering. You can say that with a smile on my face. And he promises that your suffering will not be in vain because it will be for God's glory and your joy and your good in Christ. Amen? Yeah. So if you have to suffer to give, praise God. In Matthew 6, 26, Jesus says this, though. I don't promise you wealth, but I do promise I will take care of you. I will provide. 
He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What does that have to do with me, Jesus? He says, are you not of more value than they? I'm going to take care of you. Stop holding your money and start giving it to me. That's what God is saying to you. Do you not trust that I will take care of you? Do you not know what I did for the Israelites in the desert? You know what I did for the Israelites in the desert? I split the sea. And then they started to disbelieve me. So I made them do it again when they got to the Jordan River. I split the Jordan River when they crossed into the Promised Land. And just to be sure, just to remind them that so that they don't forget again, I had them put 12 stones at, the, at that place in the Jordan. Well, God, why did you have them put 12 stones, is what somebody asked. And God told the prophet to say, or Joseph, or whoever, <laughs> somebody, told him to say, this is a monument of remembrance so that when people ask, what are these stones for? You will say, this is where God opened the river of the Jordan and led his people into the promised land. God is all about reminding you of his faithfulness and today is a pile of stones. Today is your reminder of God's faithfulness. He will provide. Stop worrying and then disobeying the giving command because you're worried and you don't trust God. Giving is one of the four easiest, and I mean that word, easiest, four easiest godly disciplines to fulfill of all the disciplines that we're to practice. I say four because the four are easy. Giving, church, word, prayer. Giving, church, word, prayer. Give, go to church, study, read the word of God, and pray. Those are four easy, godly disciplines that we can do all the time. And I say easy because they're fundamental. They are foundational to the Christian life. They are practices that right up front, first and foremost, reveal exactly where you're at spiritually. So when people come to me and tell me things like, oh, we should learn about the end times and revelation, or oh, we should talk about creation and evolution and stuff, I'm like thinking to myself, do you give? Because I'm not going to get into more complex theological realities when we don't even practice the basic fundamental godly disciplines that Jesus told us to do. If we don't give, we go to church twice a week, we don't spend any time in the Word, and we rarely pray. But we got all these great ideas of things we want to do and how people, other people should behave. And we don't practice the godly disciplines ourselves. I say they're easy because they're easy. You can get away with not praying and not reading the Word. You can lie about that. No one will know you're lying. I mean, eventually, it'll reveal itself, right? But you can hide that pretty well. Church attendance, though, that's harder. Giving, giving, you don't have to hide. You know why? The church hides it for you.
The pastor never knows how much you give, so you're free to not be held accountable. The elders don't know. The treasurer knows. That's it. Then you get your tax statement about how much you gave. Figure out at the end of the year, hmm, how much do I need to give to get the right kind of tax write-off? Is that the motivation for giving? Is that ever commanded in the Bible? I mean, is it okay to accept the tax benefit? Absolutely. Would you believe me to be a good pastor if I didn't think it was my God-given calling to hold you accountable to your godly disciplines? Would I be a good shepherd if I did not inquire about and challenge you to grow in your time in the Word and in prayer and in your church attendance? Isn't it literally my job to help you grow through various means other than just preaching on Sunday morning? Shouldn't I inquire about your spiritual health? Shouldn't I ask about your time in the Word and your time in prayer and your church attendance? I assume, since you're here, that you agree that my inquiry is for your good and is also acceptable behavior for a pastor. And beyond acceptable, but expected. If you believe that, then why do we draw a line in the sand in front of our money? If I inquired about your prayer life, you'd be like so happy to talk about it. If I inquired about your time in the Word, you'd be happy to talk about it. In fact, when I do, those of you who aren't spending time in prayer in the Word are incredibly honest with me. I love it. There is nothing better than someone who's not doing those things. Well, actually, what would be better is if you were doing those things. But (laughs) (laughs) next in line is is the people who aren't doing it. And when you ask them about it, they go, I'm just not spending enough time in the Word and prayer. I'm like, oh. You being honest is everything right now. That, that we can, that is the start of growth. That is the beginning of spiritual maturity. So if I ask you if you pray, if I ask you if you, on your word, people are honest and they had talk, they want to talk about it. If you don't go to church and I come to you and say, hey man, I haven't seen you in church a lot. Then we get a little defensive, like, oh, I've just been, you know, things we got reasons. Some of them are totally valid. Some of them are not. Some of them are sin. And usually we're honest about them. Imagine how you'd feel if I said, hey, have you give, did you give this week? Did you write a check to this church this week? I've never asked anyone that to their face on a Sunday morning. Because I don't want, I wouldn't want to be asked that. Even if I gave, I'd be like, dude, chill. It's my money. Tell me what to do with it. Don't get in my face about giving. That's personal, bruh. Like, <laughs> that's my checkbook, man. I, you don't need to know. I don't want to show you my checkbook and you see that it's negative. <laughs> that's embarrassing. Or how I spend my money. Or that I didn't give to the church this week, but I went to McDonald's three times and bought six coffees. You know? We draw a line in the sand when it comes our money. If what I said about my role as your pastor is true, that it is my responsibility that you accept and expect 
your pastor to inquire about your spiritual godliness and your disciplines of giving of uh, church attendance and the word time in the word and time in prayer then why would we not accept that a good shepherd would hold you accountable to your godly discipline of giving i will never bully you into giving i will never bully you into giving and if you think this is bullying you into giving you don't know me if I bullied you into giving, that'd be sin for me. Because 1 Peter 5 tells the shepherds of the church, do not be, what's the exact word he uses? I forgot it, just escaped my mind. I've said it many times. Oh, domineering. <laughs> that would be domineering. If I told you, you have to give, that'd be me dominating you. And forcing you then, and so I'd be sinning, and then I'd be forcing you into sin because then you'd be giving what? Compulsively and under pressure, which 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7 says, don't give under compulsion or under pressure, but cheerfully. So I'd be sinning and then causing you to sin. I'll never bully you to give. So I want you to listen to what Paul actually says about giving in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. He says, each one must give as he's made up his mind not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Most Christians in this church don't get past those first four words. They don't get to not reluctant giving or under compulsion giving. They don't get to the point where they're giving cheerfully because they don't get past the, four first, the first four words. Each one must give. That's the command. Each one must give. How? As he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but cheerfully. So this is my plea with you. This is my plea to you as your shepherd, as your pastor. Give. If I have to convince you that I'm not some money-hungry pastor just trying to build some church empire thing, then you don't know me at all. If, I have, if you believe that all churches do is ask for money all the time and they're just money-hungry organizations, then you've fallen for the deception of the world and likely are tainted by all the heretics out there who are conning people into, their, into money, into giving their money away and using it and abusing the money and abusing people and abusing their power. That happens all over the place. It happens all every Sunday in churches all over America. It's been happening for thousands of years that churches and pastors and priests and rabbis and whoever and whatever organiz uh, religious organizational leaders have been fooling people into getting money for their own benefit with no care and no concern for the spiritual well-being of the givers themselves. If I have to convince you that that's not me, then I don't think you'd even be here in the first place. I think you'd see right through that. And if you know me at all, you know that that's not my heart. What I care about is you. Amen. And the fact that I know you're not giving. And that scares me as your shepherd that I can't take you to the second step 
of Christianity because you haven't stepped on the first one. You know information on step 10. You know information about step 20. You know the doctrines of dispensationalism. You know the doctrines of the nature of Christ. You know deeper things. You know end time uh, theology. You might have the knowledge, but in practice, you're on step one because you don't give. And you wonder why there's such a massive disconnect from what you believe about God and how messed up your life gets. If you don't see the difference between the con artists and God's command for your faithful, regular, and abundant giving, then you are not spiritually mature enough to discern between truth and lie. I am not trying to get money into our church. I am trying to get godliness into you. This is 100% about you and your relationship with God And one of the most telling fruits about your faithfulness to God is your giving. It's that simple. Since faithful giving is not compulsive or under pressure, then that means faithful giving is planned. It's thought out. It's prayed over. The details of giving, such as how much to give, how frequently to give, and, you know, etc. Details like that are things that you need to plan so that's not compulsive. You ever, may, you ever like take a vacation just on a whim? I don't know about you. Maybe some of you are more whimsical people. You like want to do things like that and that makes you super happy, not like me at all. If my wife said, we're going to Florida after church today, I'd be like, ah, no, I, I got meetings this week. And I, I, I'd, I'd like freak out and panic. And the compulsive nature of that decision would make me very unsettled about the action of going to Florida this week. But if we planned it, I have time to think about it, pray about it, feel comfortable with it, start to enjoy it. Then when I go on that vacation, everything's in order. I know that everything's okay, and it's, it's well thought out, and I'm way more happy with it. Planning is important because it allows you to do what? Give cheerfully and joyfully. Are you joyfully giving when someone passes a plate in front of your face, and you're like, ah, $20 bill? Because you don't want to embarrass yourself by not giving that week, and people can see you. That's why we don't pass the plate anymore. That's why there's an offering box in the back table. You want to give, you'll give. If you need a plate to remind you to give, that's a problem. That's not a problem with the church not passing the plate. That's a problem with your heart. And I'll just say this. Your giving should be so well planned that if you're not here, you still give. Because most Christians, and this is statistically backed up. I don't have the stat with me. But... Most Christians won't give if they don't go to church that week. So if you don't go to church three weeks out of the month and you just don't give on that one week you're there, you just don't give that month. That's not faithful. That's not regular and it's definitely not abundant. And because I don't want you to give under pressure and I don't want you to give compulsively, this is what this means today. Please, please, if you did not plan on giving today, do not put money in the box. Don't find a $20 bill in your wallet or your purse and throw it in there and be like, you know what I feel? I felt a little convicted. But then he started pre, you know, and I was like, oh, I got a 20, so I'm going to give it today. Woo! Gave this month. 
that would be compulsive. That would be unfaithful because it's not joy. That's pressure. That's sinful giving. Don't do it today. Unless you already planned it so that it's done joyfully. Why does God want you to give joyfully? Did God give you salvation? Yes or no? Yes. Was he like, fine, have it. I guess you can spend eternity with me, whatever. Is there anything in the Bible like that? No. He's like, oh, I love you so much. Please take my salvation. I want to give it to you, and I want to spend eternity with you. I love you, and it brings so much joy to my soul to make you my child, to show you the power and magnitude of my grace and my mercy. Have it. He does it in joy. God's a joyful giver. Jesus used an example. If one of your sons asked you for bread, would you give him a stone? No. Why? Because you love your son. And then he says this, how much more would God love to give to you? God is a lovingly joyful giver. That's why he wants you to be that way. Because that's who he is. So do what Jesus and Paul both command. Plan your giving. Give faithfully and regularly and abundantly according to your income that God himself has given you. It's not your money. That paycheck you get that you earned, you didn't earn that. God earned it. You don't wake up that morning to make it to work if he doesn't breathe life into your, bro- into your body. You don't make it to work that day if he doesn't start your car on a cold morning. You don't make it that, to work that day if he doesn't make he, your boss fire you. You have that job because he lets you have that job. You get that money because he gives you that money. All provisions are from God. Everything is from God. Job said, are we to accept good from God but not bad? Job accepts the reality that what he received from God, which was an incredible amount of suffering, was from God. So even the bad he accepted from God. And if you're thinking that Job's wrong, the next verse, Job 2.10 says, and Job was right. So, <laughs> literally, like, he says Job did not lie in anything he's saying. So, so my point is that we have to accept that everything in life is from God for your good, the good and the bad. Your job that you have that provides the income for your family is a gift from God. It's all his money. Every penny in your pocket, every dollar in your bank account is his. Every dime that's in your savings or in your 401k or some other retirement plan, that's his money, not yours. Because it's from him and it's for him. I'm not telling you that all the money should go to God. Obviously, you have to eat, you have to provide. You know, we we go on vacations, we spend our money on fun, enjoyable entertainment. That's okay. That's okay with those things. It's not okay when those things are done before you give, though. It's not okay if those things are taken care of before you obey or before you practice the simple godly discipline of giving. And if it's his money that you have, then he gets to tell you what to do with it. And you have no right to not obey what he tells you to do with it. No right at all. 
Or would you be comfortable if I took your wife on a date, just me and her? No one laughed at that one. Mm -mm. Yeah, that's not very comfortable, is it? Why can't I take her on a date? I have no right. Is she mine? She's not mine. Men, she's yours. According to 1 Corinthians 7, you literally own her. Okay? Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not done. Let me finish my thought. Guys, chill out, all right? According to 1 Corinthians 7, women, you also own him. There you go. There you go. You're not your own. Your wife has authority over your body, and husbands, you have authority over your wife's body. You own your spouse. I don't get to take possession of something that's not mine. I don't get to choose what I do with someone else's possession. And if I did that particular thing, I'd get fired. So, and you'd be very upset with me, right? So we all agree with the principle that you don't get to decide what to do with something that's not yours. Well, your money's not yours. And you don't get to decide what to do with it. God does, and he commands you to do two things. One, give faithfully, regularly, and abundantly first. That's the first thing you do, off the top. Second, steward the rest well. That means pay your bills. That means take your wife on dates, men, once a week, Friday nights preferably. <laughs> Hezekiah 3.12. I'm just kidding, that's not about it. Um, Plan vacations, spend money uh, on, on important things uh, that serve other people, uh, pay for your education, uh, put money away in retirement and savings, steward your money in a way that honors God. So if you do all those things and if you feel like I have all my money in my bank account and I steward my money well but you don't give, then you've stewarded zero dollars well. Zero. None of it. Because all of it is tainted by the fact that none of it has been blessed by your obedience through giving. So how much should a believer give? The Bible doesn't answer it. Sorry. I wish I had an answer. I can give you some ideas. I think often you hear 10% is the standard. That comes from Genesis 14 when Abraham gave 10% of his income to Melchizedek, the high priest. But the Old Testament law was a little different. The Old Testament law required that all Jews gave approximately, if you added up all the giving that, they, that they bring annually, it was about 26% of their total income. So if you made $4,000 a month, that's $1,000 you'd give to the church. <laughs> that's a lot of money. That, doesn't that sound extreme to you? It should sound extreme in the American culture. I'm not telling you that you need to do that. What I'm telling you is that that doesn't transfer to the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, which contains all of our commands for today and reiterates a lot of Old Testament commands that still apply to us, there is nothing said about how much to give or what percentage to give. Why? Why doesn't he tell us? Wouldn't it just be easier? I mean, why would God tell the Jews in the Old Testament in the Old Covenant, and that Old Covenant sounds pretty sweet, give exactly this, okay? I don't even have to do the math. 
I don't have to be challenged at all. I don't have to be sacrificial. I just have to do exactly what he planned out and wrote down for me to do. That's kind of simple. How many sheep? Twelve. How many, you know, I don't know whatever coins they use. A hundred. Okay, done. No thinking involved. I don't even have to enjoy it. I just got to do it. So why would he give clear instructions to the Old Testament Jews and not us? What's the difference between the Old Testament covenant and the Jews in the Old Testament covenant and us? What's the difference? Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Now if you think that I'm about to say, if you, we have the Holy Spirit and that means he'll tell you how much to give. Nope. What I'm going to say is this. You have the Holy Spirit, the ultimate giver. God doesn't limit our giving to a percentage. That's why he doesn't give us any commands in the New Testament for giving, because he doesn't want to limit the ultimate giver. He's not going to cap off himself. He'll cap off the Jews who can't handle it, without some clear instructions, but God's people in the new covenant in Christ, they get God himself living in them and dwelling in them. He will not cap himself off. He is the ultimate giver, and he will push his desire to give through you as much as he wants. And we, if we had a dollar amount or a percentage laid out for us in the New Testament, we'd be like, Holy Spirit, stop. Your word says no more than 10%. And we wouldn't give. And he's like, oh, 10%? All I do is give, bruh. Like, that's who I am. That's all he is. He's just a giver and just wants to give. And we're just so resistant to it. I don't understand it. I really do. I shouldn't say I don't understand. I do understand it because there was a time in my life when I didn't give. And I couldn't live with myself anymore. I was like, I know I'm being disobedient. So I obeyed. And now, I'm not going to tell you, I should just tell you. I'm not going to tell you. I'm less concerned about the Spirit revealing to you how much to give and way more concerned with the Spirit revealing Himself and revealing His nature by Him giving away your money. I mean, His money. If He does that, then we don't have to worry about how much to give. You don't have to ask that question. He'll give as he chooses. And you will not go without. You will be okay. You will have no need to be anxious about your provisions. You know why? Because you're giving to a church. And if you're giving to a church, you know what that means? You're a part of that church. Probably means you're going to that church. Might even mean you're a member of that church. It means you're connected to that church and you have relationships in that church and you're a part of that church. And you know what the church is supposed to do? Read Acts. That's what the church is supposed to do. Give, 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 give. That's what the church does in the, in, the, in the early church. When they first gathered and they first organized as a collective body of believers, they said, first things first, who has a need? And everyone was like, me. And they're like, all right, everybody bring everything you have to the point where you have nothing and we'll make sure everybody has something. Oh, that's socialism. No, it's not. It's biblical giving. That is love. I'm not telling you to empty your bank account, bring it to the church, and we'll divvy it out. That's not what I'm saying. 
What I'm telling you is that the heart of those people was our priority is to make sure that we are not hindered in the advancement of the gospel by a bunch of people who are starving to death even though they're Christians. I can't live with myself as a believer if I see that going on. And if I'm connected to a group of people that love me and I love them and I'm giving, I won't have a provisional need because God will take care of me through the church. That's why we have a benevolence account. So that when you have a problem, you will come to us and say, I need money. And we'll go, we have money for this very need. That these people have given and that gift that they have given is for you. And we put someone in charge of that benevolence account. It's not me, and it's not an elder. But it has to be verified through the elders and approved to make sure that we're not getting, like, you know, scammed by people or whatever. But just for prudence and accountability and wisdom, it goes through the elders. But someone else who's in charge of that account, and the whole purpose of that thing is to express this reality, that we as a church will take care of each other. Not the elders up here making decisions for the church will look down on you and say, we will take care of you like we're some authority over taking care of you, but that we collectively as a body will look out for each other. We don't need a benevolence account for you to serve one another. It's helpful to have it, but we should be able to give to each other regardless of whether we have a benevolence account or not. In fact, just for clarity, there are two boxes on the welcome table. Again, don't give today if you haven't decided, please. There are two boxes on the welcome table. One says regular offering. The other one says benevolence offering. The regular offering is your regularly, weekly, monthly, whatever giving that goes in there. The benevolence offering box, you put money in there, it goes directly to helping people who have the need in this church. So you won't go without. I'm almost done. Almost. Two-thirds. Okay. Spirit lives in you. He wants to give. He's already given you life. He wants to express his true self and his true power and his true character and his true nature through you in the four godly disciplines. And we tend to resist most of them, but especially giving. But that is who he is, the greatest giver. And he's, he has now taken over your identity. Your identity is in who now? Christ. And now he's taken over your identity so that he can express himself through you by practicing these godly disciplines, one of which is giving. If you don't want him to do that, if you don't want that, Christ in you, expressing himself through is the power of his spirit, acting out the spiritual disciplines through you. If you don't want that and you're too, too concerned with your own personal wealth or your own personal growing yourself for future wealth or if you take more of a false humility route of oh I just want to make sure I'm preserving my income for the future not trying to build wealth just trying to be safe and then not giving and you're not spiritually mature you're an infant in the faith you have knowledge, and you have been probably saved for maybe, what, 20 or 40 years, but you're not mature. And if you have knowledge and think of yourself as a mature believer, and you know these commands to give, pray, read, study, go to church, 
but don't practice giving. James 4, 17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Meaning, knowledge does not equal practice. Knowledge that does not equal practice is sin. Grace Church, we are not faithful givers. Collectively as a body, we are not faithful givers. We have some faithful giving individuals, but as a church, we are not. If you think that giving your time compensates for giving money, then I challenge you to show me in the Bible where that is valid. So if you believe that, you have to provide a Bible verse to show me that serving with your time is equal to giving your money because it's not in the Bible. The Bible is very clear. You give money and you serve the church, both and, not either or. I've heard a lot of people use the excuse, well, I don't give any money, but I spend all my time serving the church. Okay, I'm going to do some math with you. I'm going to get real with you guys, okay? Not because, I mean, I, you should know me by now. I, I really just want what's best for you guys, okay? So I'm going to be pretty honest about our numbers, just some numbers that make sense, just to give you an idea. This isn't about the numbers themselves. The numbers reveal the problem, okay? There are 30, approximately, give or take, 35 giving units in this church. Now, if you asked our treasurer how many giving units are in this church, he would tell you it's a lot less because he would have on hand the actual number of families or people who actually have given, but there are a lot who don't. So the number of potential giving units is, give or take, 35 in this church. Since you're married, that's 70 adults, give or take. The average median household income in our area is $55,000 a year. Some of you make $155,000. Some of you make 10 times that. Some of you make $30,000 or less. And this is the average. So it might not be fair for me to take the community average and apply it to our church. I don't know. But I'm not going to ask each of you for your income information and figure out the real number. So I'm going to go with this. 55,000. 10% of 55,000 is 5,500 times 35 is 192,000. That's $192,000, if you average it out, that this church should be giving. That's close to 200,000. Right now, if everyone in this church continued to give as you have given over the past year, so this is not based on giving this year, January and February. This is based on a couple of years of giving. If everyone continues to give at the current rate at which you've been giving since you've been here, at the end of this year, in, in 11 months, this church will have given $75,000. When according to the average, we should be giving, I don't know, close to $200,000. That's a $120,000 that we as a congregation have said, no, mine. That's a huge number too. That scares me. When you think about it collectively, that's a big number. 
And that number could be off because I don't know how much money you make. But I think it's pretty telling where we're at and that where we're at does reveal not where we're at financially, where we're at spiritually. I hope by now you understand why I asked those questions up front. Do you believe that, do you trust that the Holy Spirit is leading here? Do you trust that God provides, that he is faithful? All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is your faithfulness. This is all about you and your faithfulness to God. Not about the church, not about the organization. That's nothing to do with our budget. If you think anything I just said was like, come on guys, we've got to make budget this year. You think I care about our budget? If we, if we fall $100,000 short of the budget, you think I'm going to go, what am I going to do? Well, God will provide. How? I don't know. He'll do it. He's done it every day of my life. You think he's going to stop now? I'm not worried at all. This is not about us making budget. It's not like, come on, Grace Church, we gotta give to make money. Come here. We gotta, we gotta provide for those ministries. We gotta get out there and save people. We need money to do it. It's not about that at all. This is about you. It's about this thing right here in your chest and this thing in your head and its relationship to God. It is my highest priority and calling in my life to get you as close to Jesus as I can. And there is a huge chasm between you and Jesus, and it's called selfishness. Because we don't give. And the fact that we claim to be faithful followers, while we sinfully disobey one of the simplest godly disciplines in the Bible, is not okay. And then we walk around unread, unprayed in church twice a month and not giving and then wonder why we aren't growing or why we're struggling or why relationships are hurting or why we have conflict. We disobey God and then expect to receive the blessings that come from obedience. <coughs> Purely foolishness. I don't care if this church grows. I don't care if we have more ministries or not. I don't care if you get discipled or not. I don't care if people... Lost people get saved or not. <gasps> you can't say that, Pastor. You're supposed to care. We all care about those things. Here's my point. I don't care about those things because those are things we can't do. We can't do those things. None of that will happen and none of that will matter if I can't even reach into your most basic and fundamental spiritual disciplines and get you to grow there. What good is saving people if they're going to come to a church and learn from you not to give? How does that help the kingdom of God? Well, we'd have more people here, so we'd have more givers, so we'd be okay financially. This isn't about the financial well-being of the church. This isn't about lost people even. This isn't about lost souls coming here and learning these things. This is about you. And your relationship with God. If we were on pace to make a million dollars this year, rolling in the dough, no financial problems, we're set for years to come, we don't need more money from you, but we were still at the same percentages, I'd still be preaching this sermon with the same veracity as I am right now. 
Because this has nothing to do with the church making budget. This is genuinely and wholeheartedly my concern for your soul because we are not giving. And then people will come up to me and say, Pastor Mark, I want to lead this ministry and I want to do this and that and I want to serve in this way. Why? Why, Why would I say yes to that? You don't give. Oh, so giving's now a requirement for serving God? Yeah! Yeah, totally, 100%. In the Bible. Absolutely. If you, can't, if you can't obey the fundamental stage one command to give, then you don't get the privilege of doing more. It would be, I would be a foolish shepherd to allow such a thing. Which means what? I have to know if you give. Uh-oh. People don't like that. The pastor knowing how much they give. Especially when I come up here and I get kind of worked up about giving. You think that I'm going to pull you aside one day and have the same conversation. Get in your face like, why don't you give? I, I, it's not, I mean, if you, like if you've ever had a private conversation with me, even if it's been like a tough one, you know that that's not my approach. You're not mature enough to serve in those ways. Certainly not mature enough to lead if you don't give. If you're not giving, then I can only assume that you're also not practicing the other godly disciplines, right? That's my evidence. You're not practicing one of the godly disciplines. I got to assume you're not practicing the other ones. Which means you're not in the word and you're not in prayer, so you're not mature. Why would I trust you to serve or to lead if I can't even trust you to obey one of the most basic and fundamental commands in the entire Bible? You don't trust God, so why would I trust you? I know that sounds harsh. But I think it has to be. I think all of us need to be shaken, sh- like, shook, shook, shaken, <laughs> sh- shooken in out of their tree, shaken out of your tree. We all need to be shook, whatever, out of your tree, taken from your place of comfort, fall. Falling hurts. You land hard. It hurts. It's going to hurt. This hurts. This probably hurts. This sermon probably hurts. And I bet that some of you are even thinking, this is really legalistic because that's not the gospel. The gospel isn't Christians give. That's not the gospel. It it is the gospel. (laughs) It's 1,000% the gospel. There's no gospel without a giving God. There's no gospel without God being a giver who then fills you with his Holy Spirit who is a giver and then he implements immediately a command that you also give because that's how you got the gospel. To reveal to the world the gospel. So this is 100% gospel oriented and related. This is all about Jesus and his death and resurrection. This is not... It's not about anything else. And this is not legalistic to communicate to you a very basic command that is all over the Bible that we don't do. Okay, last words. I'm going to address two people now. One, I know this has gone really long. This is really important. So I apologize for the length. 
But I also don't apologize because this has to be said today. To those who continually, faithfully give abundantly, I hope that what you hear today is a great encouragement to you, that the Spirit is using you for God's glory and that this should bring you great joy. But keep in mind that giving a lot of money is not the command. That the command is giving faithfully and joyfully. That's the command, joyfully. A joyful giver gives joyfully because they love to give. Because they love God and God loves to give. And that is what makes it a joy to them. So, faithful givers, be encouraged. And I would encourage you in this. Pray for the Spirit to press into your giving and into your heart of giving even more and that you continue to trust Him. I am not telling those who are already giving to give more. What I'm telling you is sometimes I think givers get complacent with their giving and as complacency grows, joy decreases. And sometimes the Spirit has to press into our giving and increase it to challenge our joy. That might be you, maybe not. All I care about is that you continue to do it joyfully. To those who do not give regularly and do not give faithfully and do not give at all or those who give minimally in comparison to your income be convicted that's a good thing conviction's good that's from god be attentive to this command this is not a command that jesus took lightly talked about money more than any other subject except for hell Take this command seriously. Check your spiritual maturity. What you should not do is say, yeah, I really felt convicted today, so I'm going to go home and pray about my giving. No. no. Why, why do we say stuff like that? Why do we say we're going to go pray about something that God tells us to do? He doesn't tell you to pray about giving. He told you to give. It's a command. You follow it. Now, should prayer be involved? Yeah, of course, okay? Obviously, like how much you give and the planning to give and all that should be prayed about. But the idea of should I give at all should not be a matter of prayer unless you're confessing to God your sin Amen. and praying for him to help you obey. But praying about whether you should or shouldn't is mind-boggling because it's a command. We should just do it. What I hear a lot, though, is, believe me, I've heard this a lot. I really have. Just as a pastor, I think people talk to me about spiritual things probably more than they talk to most other people, right? And so, like, I hear some things that sometimes make me kind of go, what? And one of the things I hear a lot is, like, you know, God understands my circumstances. Um, Or I prayed about it and he knows my heart is to give, but I just don't really have it at the time. I can't really make it work right now. You may have prayed, but you didn't pray to God because he did not tell you that. Because it's not in the Bible. There was a woman in the Bible who had nothing. She had two coins and she gave both coins. There are men over here giving from their abundance, gave way more than she did. And Jesus said, she's the winner. She gave everything. They gave from their abundance. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 
You're storing up your abundance. I want you to give abundance and give abundantly. Jesus is pretty clear. Give to me first from your first fruits, then spend the rest responsibly, and I'll take care of your needs. That's what you need to hear today. No more excuses, no more deception, no more disobedience. If you care at all about us as a church, if you care at all about your own spiritual well-being, if you care about the gospel at all, or about God, or about Jesus, or about your own spiritual maturity and your own spiritual health, then you'll give. Matthew 5.42 and Luke 6.38, Jesus said, give. So do it. Why? Because Jesus also said this. You are truly my disciples if you obey me. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. Oh, I trust that that was you. And I pray that it was. Do your work. You know what to do. We don't. So show us. In Jesus' name, amen.